Okay. See, as we start now, I just did that part to warm up my voice. You know, so my voice is getting better. Now I'll turn on the recorder. I thought it was on. I'm sure glad I looked at that. <laughs> anyway, the last part of this introduction is there's much to learn about worship as uh, we look at this song today. We want to enhance our praise. And I think we become frustrated sometimes because that ultimate worship of God is so elusive. Have you ever noticed that? You know, you want it to be even more and more, and you can't quite get there with what you want, that you'd like it to be. Now, we know we're supposed to do it, but a lot of the time we just can't seem to get a handle on it. And there are some special times where we know that music just takes it over the top. But one thing for certain is that our songs take our minds off ourselves. And they put them exactly where they need to be. Our minds, our thoughts need to be on this majestic God. And as we do that, we're focused upon Him. And that's uh, another means of getting to the Lord as we get into the Word of God, it prepares our hearts. And I hope today that uh, some of that music with God's Spirit uh, driving us has got us to the level where we just can't wait to, to read His Word and hear it. Songs of worship uh, give us a glimpse of who God is. They should be talking about His nature, His very character, His very acts that He, that he does. And we are faithful witnesses, or we are to be faithful witnesses to that. So as we lift up our voices in song, He hears those. And we're witnessing to that. So this, this song today we look at is thoroughly God-centered. This Exodus 15. It's a great model. I think it's a great example of what worship is about. And I think uh, the Jewish people constantly referred to this song of Moses. A lot of quotes come out of here. And you get the high superiority, the great nature of God that's being cast out there. And that should be expanding in our thoughts. This powerful, awesome Lord who is worthy of our praise. Let's go into the text. That's really where we want to be. That's where we're safe, isn't it? Right in the Word of God. Verse 1 through 5 is going to be dealing with the first stanza. A song has stanzas, and we're going to look at uh, kind of like four of those stanzas. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song And He has become my salvation. He is my God. And I will praise Him, my Father's God. And I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and His army He has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them they sank to the bottom like a stone. Right after we finish chapter 14, we've got to go right into this. Now this chapter is a bridge 
We have been building up for 14 chapters where we're headed to. The first 14 chapters mentioned the Egyptians and God's judgment upon them and how He's going to deliver Israel. The second half of the book features the desert wanderings. And so we have a hymn right in the middle of this to take us on over into the desert. It's a hymnic interlude in the midst of this story of deliverance, perfectly placed by God. Uh, And as I said just a few minutes ago, it's really the core of Israel's expression of faith. How often the psalm writer or Isaiah will refer to this historic event of the Red Sea and then what Moses wrote after that. It's very influential and I think it's the very centerpiece of the worship of the Jewish people that they had in that in historical perspective. Now these first five verses are an affirmation of their personal faith. In this stanza, we see that God is not just some God that is out there who is just transcendent only, and He is transcendent, but He's a God who is our God. He is my God. And we can say that with all boldness. And to know He personally relates to each one of us. And so as the Israelites sang this song, they are recognizing that He is my God. You notice songs are great teachers. And you know even the little ditties, we used to have in our church or whenever I grew up as a kid, you know, a lot of those little songs kind of stick with you. And you go, oh yeah, I know where that came from. And little lines, especially if they're verses out of Scripture. We, we used to write a lot of songs that were just right out of Scripture. I mean, they were just Scripture, right out of the, like King James or whatever, you know, and we just sang them. <laughs> and uh, made up our own little, little songs. And those today can still be there. You know, it's, it's kind of fascinating. Great, great teaching to them. But this is, a, this is a personal testimony from the Israelites. God is not something who is, that is abstract, that's far out there that you can't understand. Or He's not just the God of the ancestors, you know, those people of faith like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but He's, he's my God. That's what they're saying. They're calling Him my God. So He's to be known personally. So this song has... Truly a great meaning. Tremendous meaning to these individuals who are participating here. So we look at verse 1. And remember, the main theme of this song, it's victory. God triumphs. God triumphs gloriously. It's introduced right here in verse 1. It's all the work of the Lord. It's all Him that does it. Israelites cannot take any credit whatsoever. And we saw that. You know, for their salvation, I'm sure that somebody would like to say, yeah, but I, I did this. I walked across the Red Sea. Yeah, but how could you have walked across the Red Sea if God wouldn't have done it all? It was easy to walk through there. What choice, what other thing do you have here? You know, you're gonna, this is what you want. God made that possible. So it's a great view of, of uh, even salvation uh, of the Lord, not only in deliverance physically across the Red Sea, but our own salvation. So they, they saw him work on their behalf. And they got overwhelming victory. Just when they thought they were dead men, dead women, dead children. Now, Moses wrote this song. He's the one who gets credit. 
But the rest of the nation gets in on it. They sing it. And I want you to think about it for a moment. There are like a, maybe as many as two million or more. And can you imagine if they're singing this all at the same time? Have you ever been in a crowd where there has been like um, a promise creepers, keepers is creepers. <laughs> you know, and of course, there's a lot of things I always say. You know, we're not promise keepers. You know, God's the only promise keeper. But I've heard some of their songs where they'd be singing a cappella. It was just it was like fifty thousand men, and I go, wow. Or you've been in, in uh, like some of the Bible conferences, maybe. Or the Piper Conference you guys are sending us to? If you didn't know that, you guys are sending Carolyn and I to, up to Minnesota in about three weeks. And we're going to take in a conference. And when, they, when those people sing, when you have hundreds or, or thousands of people singing, it is a good picture of what heaven's going to be like. And the numbers are, you know, we might be small here, but at the same time, that's still an incredible thing. But uh, two million, my, that's just a picture, though, of what heaven's going to be like, you know, an eternal state, praising God. I can't wait. But uh, this is relevant. This song is very relevant to them. They're learning this and they're putting it out to God like they haven't before. And they knew that there was a God of Israel, but they didn't really know Him. Didn't know Him like this. And you see a lot of these key terms that come up. This glorious God in this, right in verse 1. I will sing to the Lord. We had a phrase in, in a song today like that, didn't it? I will sing. For why? Why will I sing? He has triumphed gloriously! Exclamation point. He's a glorious God. I'm sure they could agree with that. They're starting to see some glory that they did not know about this God. Now, we move on into verse 2. Verse 1 says, The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. And God did His punishment on the Egyptians. Now, verse 2 is quoted later in the Psalms and Isaiah. The Lord is my strength and sung, and He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I'll praise Him. My Father's God, and I'll exalt Him. Let's turn to Psalm 118, verse 14. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. You see uh, something kind of similar there? Exactly similar. That sounds like Moses. David writes this 500 years later, inspired by the same Holy Spirit. Let's look in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Isaiah does the same thing that David does, that Moses did. They're in agreement. This song they knew. 
children of Israel knew the Song of Moses. This is very personal. People reflect on the meaning of these words. They're singing it. You, you, you have to think about the words as you sing it. And I don't think that they had PowerPoint back then either. And they had no hymn books. I don't think they had any way of... There were stones they could have written on, but I don't think they did that. I think they just memorized this thing. Moses wrote it, taught it to them somehow, and there they are. They're singing. But as they sing it, it's relating to what God had done. God did this. God was my strength. He did that. He gets all the glory. God was my song. He is my song. This whole thing that's been written about, He is my song. God wrote this anyway. We give credit to Moses, but really it's the Holy Spirit who wrote it. He is my salvation. He is my salvation. Stand back and see the salvation of the Lord. Moses said that as we looked at chapter 14 last week. So three key words. Strength, song, salvation. We can say that. Each one of us. He is my strength. He is my song that I have to sing. He is my salvation. God is a source of all these. And He is to be known in a personal way. And if He can't be known personally, then the world is certainly in a dark place. He has made Himself known. He makes Himself known here to the Israelites. And He takes an extreme interest in His people. He is much more interested than we'll ever be He's the one who created us and gave us the personality that we have. He's just shaping it. He's just working on it. And He will finish it perfectly. And you know what? There is nothing that really can be against us. As it says in Romans 8. At least be against us and win. We always win. We're on the winning side. Now in verse 2, He also says, My Father's God. He's not only their own God, but He's their Father's God. And this refers to a covenant relationship that He had with His people going all the way back to creation. And then, of course, we think of the covenant relationship that was specifically made to Abraham. And that carried through Isaac and Jacob and handed on through through the patriarchs. God is faithful to His promises. So when they say this, He's my God, He's my Father's God, they're saying, He made a promise. And this promise has come true. And so here we are as they say that. He, he never forgets what He says He's going to do. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In the law, which will later be given to them. 4.37 says, And because He loved your fathers... Therefore He chose their descendants after them. And He brought you out of Egypt with His presence. With His, what? Mighty power. Think of power. There is power. God Himself. And that leads us into verse 3. Because it says that God is a man of war. Boy, does that go against the grain of people's thoughts today. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Or Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is His name. If there is in this world an enemy like Satan, as Martin Luther wrote in a mighty fortress 
is what? Is our God. He talked about the enemy Satan. If sin and evil are hateful to God, and they are, then God has to wage war against them. There has to be war. And we see it throughout the Bible all the way to the very end in the book of Revelation. We see Him coming back triumphing victoriously, gloriously, consummation and such. And you think of all of that and you go, wow, I'm glad I'm on His side. He conquers the enemy. He is in a battle. He's mighty in battle. It's no contest. But He is called Lord Sabaoth in the Old Testament. The Lord of armies. The Lord of armies. Look at Exodus 14, 14. Chapter before here. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Just stand by. Just be peaceful. You can be quiet. Watch this. God's going to do it. He fights. He fights for us. Deuteronomy 1.30 The Lord, Yahweh, your God, who goes before you, He will fight for you according to all He did for you in Egypt before your eyes. How often are they reminded what He did? Isn't that what we have to do is be reminded constantly of what God has done. I just, I just don't know what's going to happen. The fear of the future. It just bugs us all, doesn't it? And yet, God says, hey, don't worry about it. I'll fight for you. Just believe me. Just trust in me. There in Deuteronomy, He's saying, hey, listen. Listen to me. Remember what I did. You, you can't forget that. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, how about Isaiah 42? We'll look in the prophets. 42.13 This spoke to them back in their day and this speaks to us today too, doesn't it? 42.13 The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up His zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out. Yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against His enemies. There's that mighty fortress. Onward, Christian soldiers. A lot of those liberal churches, I guess all the liberal churches took that right out of their hymn book. Just ripped it right out. They just take a little piece of the character of God away, right? And they don't like the wrath of God. Well, you're going to take out a lot of verses dealing with that, aren't you? Let's take out the Old Testament. No wonder they say the God of the Old Testament we don't like. Then you see in the New Testament, He does the same thing. Might as well take that out. Well, you don't have much left, do you? Hmm. Revelation 19.11. Oh, yeah. Got to like this. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war against his enemies. He will not war against his people. Never. Just be at peace. Be at peace, knowing you will not be judged again as far as your sins are concerned. The divine warrior imagery, quite an image throughout Scripture. You have the crossing of the sea, and now you have the the battle with chaos. 
And God intervenes right into human history and fights for His people. He fights their wars. Stand back. All we have to do is just go to the commander. You know, we have the armor on. You know, I'm just glad to have that uniform on. <laughs> I take this. I, we heard a, a message from John MacArthur dealing with loving the church. He says, I love the church. And uh, we were listening to that in the car the other day. He says, I'm just glad to be wearing the uniform. I'm just glad to be in the army. I'm just glad to be in the parade. He, he does all the fighting. We're in the army, but he does all the fighting. He does it all. Huh. Verse 4 and 5 talks about him destroying the enemy. God conquers the enemies of, uh, un, uh, of righteousness. They're unrighteous. And so anybody who is against the righteousness of God, He will conquer. God is opposed all those who defy His created order. He's against them. And He will take action against them, such as what He did against Pharaoh. And He's consistent with that throughout Scripture. He overcomes with ease, doesn't He? Victory is easy for Him. It's not a contest. 6 through 10 is the second stanza. This is about uh, a little bit of his uh, weapons here. What? God has weapons? Doesn't have to have weapons, but he put it, puts it in an imagery that we can kind of uh, get a little bit of a handle on here. The focus here is, is God's working, his action, his intervention, as uh, we look at this second part. 6 through 10, let's read that. Your right hand, O Lord has become glorious. Those are certain words that just stick out in praise. And in power, your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. Look at this. You ready? And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Right hand, the right hand of God stands for power. That's easy, isn't it? When you think of somebody who's right-handed, they they, they use that right hand. That's their best hand. That's the one with power. Well, God has the right hand. You shall sit on the right hand of my throne. As He says that to the Son. He's a God of might. His power is so glorious. So majestic. He puts on a magnificent display when He does things like that, doesn't He? The theater opens up and He puts it on display for the children of Israel, that two million plus watching that show. Being a part of it. They were, either, they were acting. The part out. They did it. 
He wrote it. And he's making sure this goes through. And he puts his display on. They saw that. Power. Verse 7 speaks of his majesty and the greatness of your excellence. He's great in his excellence in displaying his wrath. He's a great God. He's an excellent God. Majestic God. He is a God who is a God of wrath. He's excellent in throwing his opponents down and just destroying them. His anger that he had here just consumes them. God is a God of anger. He hates sin. He hates the wickedness and the evil. He hates when people defy who He is. And He uses His created order to destroy them in the sea there. Verses 8-10 through 10 talks about the breath. Breath of His nostrils. Now we know that He's not blowing wind out of His nose here. But, you know, this is imagery. It's very vivid. The breath of His nostrils represent that wind that He brought and it blew back the waters and stacked them up high where they would walk through there. Stood like a wall. Congealed them. Made them solid. They weren't running through there when the soldiers from Egypt came running through them to catch up with the Jews. They thought, oh, we got them now. <laughs> Alright, this is going to be great. And God simply just had, had been breathing all that night long and then He has the waters to return and drown the Egyptian army. He actually did that. That was real. Those were individuals. It was a nation. He caused that to happen. He is a God of wrath. And I think Moses definitely is exalting God because of His great attribute of wrath. We sure can't take that away. It should be nice just to take God's love. He's nice, sweet, loving God and not have a God of wrath. He's not that kind of God. Yes, He is. How could we miss it? <laughs> it is here. And He does do that today. And He will continue to do it until the eternal state comes into play. Now, the third stanza at verse 11 comes in. We just get... Pure praise here. That's what I've got point three at. Just pick up some of the words. We've been seeing them all along. I mean, you say, I want to get to the height of what praise is. It's a good place to go. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. This section just extols the great, perfect character of God here. It's already been doing that. But the question is asked is, who is like you, O oh God? Who is like God? That's a good question, because the Egyptians had many gods. And the Israelites had been in that uh, particular circumstance for many years. And so who knows what they really believed. But the fact of the matter is, we know that the Egyptians had gods, and God defeated those gods throughout the plagues. 
And so the subject of God's comes up here again. He showed how he has already defeated him. And of course, there's no other gods that exist when it says, who is like you, O God uh, among the gods, O Lord among the gods. Sometimes that means judges, rulers. But as far as the Israelites are concerned, if they did know of those gods of the, uh, the Egyptians, they've seen those gods defeated, and who is like you? Um, pagans had a multiplicity of gods. We know as they go into the promised land, the Canaanites, for instance, and Hittites, and go on and on and on, all those different ones. They all had gods, 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 gods. Egyptians had their gods and their trinity and everything. But God's defeat uh, at the ultimate at the, at the Red Sea there is showing that He defeated those. And of course, He didn't have to show that. But that's what He does. He He shows a part of who He is. He ex- He excels in revealing Himself. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 39 Now, see that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. God speaking there at uh, pretty well the, uh, the end of Deuteronomy. And He said, there's no other God. He's demonstrated that perfectly. And we know that. Uh, Go to Micah. Micah 7.18 Who is a God like you? Boy, this has meaning to us. Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage. He does not retain His anger forever. Look at this. Because He delights in mercy. He is really pleased. He rejoices. He is just delighted when He gets to show His mercy. God is a God of pleasure. And He pleasures whenever He takes people like us of iniquity and sin and transgression and turns us into the remnant of His heritage. And He no longer has His anger against us. He had anger against the Egyptians. And all people who are in their sin. But yet, He pardons us. Forgives us. Who is a God like that? Micah cries that out. Wow. There's none like God. That's a good place to start when you're praising God, isn't it? There is none like you. Absolutely not. Now we we look in verse 11 also where he uses two words, I think, that are words that really have to be brought out. Who is like you, glorious in holiness? Israelites are learning this. They've seen some glory of God here. Who is like you, glorious in holiness, 
glory is is weighty. Glory is what God's all about. One of the best ways He shows how glorious He is is His holiness. He is holy. He shows off that glory in being holy. You remember in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 3, famous, famous section there on the prophet and then as he's in the temple and the angels are there. One cried to to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The holiness of God. There are no other attributes. Like You never even see glory, glory, glory. You don't see righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. Love, love, love. But you see holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy God. And they're going to learn that as they go out into the wilderness. They don't know how holy He is. They'll find out. Aaron's sons find out. Aaron will find out. The whole nation of Israel will find out. When they do something that they were told not to do, God's holiness is revealed. God is another order of being. There's nobody like Him. We are being made in the image of Christ. That's the whole goal of everything. That's the whole plan of God. To make us like Christ. I'm blown away by that. I I cannot fathom how that is. That's where God is taking us to. So we'll be able to glorify Him in the most glorified way. As we're like Christ. He is so different than any other in the whole universe. The otherness of God. When you speak of the holiness of God, you have to think about the otherness. He's so far transcendent above anything that He's made. He is the Holy Other. Who is like you, glorious in holiness, totally pure, without sin, separated. He's another kind of being altogether. (laughs) And the world out there, the best they can do is call it, well, there could have been an alien that created the earth. (laughs) Yeah. He's an alien. He is definitely strange to you. You do not know Him if you were to say that. God alone is holy. Now, His people are required to be holy. Be holy for I am holy. That's an incredible thought that we can take that attribute and have that communicated to us. We're not like Him, but yet He's making us in the image of His Son. Like the, the, and He's making us holy right here on this earth. He's sanctifying us right now. Did you know that you are being made holy right now as you think on His holiness? 
Do you know there's, there are things changing in you at this moment? Not because of me and my voice is coming out, but the Word here. Right now, we're being made holy. Thinking of that. Fearful in praises, doing wonders. He's awesome in His glory. He's holy in His glory. He's working wonders here. Fearful in praises, doing wonders. Wonders of power. Wonders of grace. They're out of the course of nature. It goes beyond that. These are wonders we don't deserve. Wonders we would never expect. Children of Israel had, they had no reason to expect what He was going to do. That's why they were fearful of what was going to happen to them. And they kind of started to forget what God had already done. Why would He do all that and then put them out there and then kill them? And so, you know, they didn't deserve anything that all this great grace and the wonders were happening. Neither do we. The wonders of His powers that's happened to us. Verse 12, You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Earth just took those Egyptians in. Right hand, its power again. His transcendent power. Verse 13, You in your mercy. Oh. Mercies. God's mercy led forth those children that were in bondage. Now, we know that that's a great picture of, uh, of us. We were slaves. We were slaves to sin. Slaves to death. Hades. Satan. Flesh. World. And he just reached down in his mercy. It's okay, I'm not... I'm gonna, you're paid for. You're not going to be punished. God had mercy on the children of Israel to deliver them out of it. Had they done anything? Had they cried out to the Lord even? Here we go. It's His unfailing love that uh, is all a part of that. All these things we can, we can relate to, right? So we're seeing so many words here that are so key as we think about His great victory. He's a Redeemer, isn't He? You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. Brought out. Brought them out of bondage. The Israelites' real problem really wasn't being slaves in the physical sense. Well, it's a problem, right? But that's not the real problem. You've got to get down to the real issue. They didn't know God. That was the problem. They didn't know Him. They are now seeing some aspects of God that they had no idea who He was. They're singing these songs. Right as they go along. Sinful human beings. They were totally alienated from Him. They needed to be redeemed. They didn't know it. That's the problem with lost people. They need to be redeemed. They don't know they need to be redeemed, but they need it. And so God calls his elect people to go out to those people and some of them of them are elect but they're not saved yet and so they hear these wonderful things about this great god and they hear the terrible things about their own sin and how um, they um, commit terrible deeds against a holy god then they see their need for redemption before they thought they were just doing fine 
And then in 13 it says, you have guided them. Guided them. God had to be a shepherd. They're the sheep. And sheep just go off and do whatever they, they want to do. And the shepherd has to come along and make sure they're at the right place or else they'll get eaten, they'll get destroyed. And he has great care for them. They have great need. He has great care. The people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them. Israelites, how about us? How can we not shout out praises for all these things? And again, he says, you've guided them in your strength. Strength and power. When, when you watch movies, do you like movies that have a lot of action? You know, something that sometimes has some blow-up tendencies. You know, some great um, special effects. You like to see power, right? And I think of Mick and Nondor, you know. Think of the, the superheroes, right? All the strength and power. They, they go beyond natural man, right? And really all they are doing is, of course, Superman, you know, is pointing to really God. He's the one with that great power. We, this is the way, you know, we can kind of uh, imagine it. You know, this power that uh, electricity has and, and all the other ways they've discovered as power. We always like power. You get a computer, it's got power, and, and then you find out, oh, there's something better out there. I'd like to have more power in this, uh, you know, more capacity. And we're always looking for some, the next power. <laughs> and yet, we know this strength that God has. It's only by His strength. They can get to the goal. You know, it's His strength. God's holy habitation. That's the goal. That's the goal. That's where they're going. And that's God's goal. That's where He's taken them. You've guided them in your strength to your holy, holy habitation. No unholy person will go into His habitation. And we should be praising the Lord for that because how would you like to have sinners who have not been redeemed into heaven too? Because a lot of people say, hey, you know what? God is such a great God that everybody is going to be saved. That's universalism. We know about that. That's taught heavily in our times. Even mainline denominations will say that and deny the fact uh, that there is a hell and uh, yet uh, God is holy. They don't even know the attribute of holiness, do they? Fourth stanza, 14 through 19. The people will hear and be afraid. It's talking about the, the enemies up ahead in the future. We're looking in the future now. We've seen what he has done, what he's doing, but now we're looking to see what is going to happen. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased, redeemed. You bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. It should end there, but it's not over yet. <laughs> yeah. 
just as Egypt sank, so in the future God's enemies would be conquered. That happened there. Just trust me. Where you're heading, same thing's going to happen. You can look at that and say, it's real. That did happen. It's good to look back on reality, isn't it? And history. Don't forget history. History is important. Very important. If it's based on truth. Because that's the foundation we stand on. Whoever would oppose God has no hope. They are totally without hope. It's where the lost are at. That's you know, there's one thing about you know God destroying the enemy and rejoicing in that it, but there's another sense too where we as humans we hate the idea of especially people that are close to us and our family and friends who have no hope unless they put their trust in Christ. And that should behoove us to bring them good news. The news of the Exodus, it spread out everywhere. There's no way that this was just uh, a secret, something that happened way back in Egypt. This got around. I mean, it it would have made CNN in, in five seconds had this happened, you know. Uh, CNN... Uh, Fox News and all that, they get that news and they make it happen quick. Well, I'll tell you what, this spread, it spread all over the, uh, the world at that time. And over the course of 40 years, uh, there, were, there were quite the stories that were going around. And the enemies really did fear this God and these people. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 4. And command the people, saying, You are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau. Hmm, Jacob, Esau. You're going you're gonna to pass in that, that area. They are enemies. <laughs> Who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Don't meddle with them. For I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. That's right. God promised it. He sticks to it. You shall buy food from them with money that you may eat. You shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. God has blessed you there. But anyway, that's some of the things that are that are being told uh, to them. Uh, look in Numbers twenty-two three. When God says something. Focus on it. Remember it. Don't forget it. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. Sick with dread. This is where Balak sends for Balaam, you know, the false prophet. <laughs> If I was, if I were the uh, the enemy, I would really seriously think about. I'd like to get on their side. I wonder if they'll let me in. I don't have a chance. We don't have a chance here. Joshua two nine. Yeah. 
after you have the five books of Moses, after you have the law, then you have Joshua. Joshua is the captain after Moses. And in two nine he says, and eight says, no, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came up out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. This is Rahab. And she does join the other side. And she's used in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, as a woman of faith by the grace of God. She knew what happened. And that's why you don't want to stay on the other side. <laughs> and uh, so, God blessed her in allowing her to be part. Dean, these nations knew that this Yahweh was more powerful than the gods they trusted in. They kept trusting in their gods, but there was a lot to fear. Now, 16 and 17, fear and dread will fall on by the greatness of your arm. And it says about the people that he purchased, you'll bring them in in 17. You'll plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, of your, your own dwelling. And there's probably different ways we can go with that. God's going to bring them to his sanctuary. One thought, and I think it probably could be all of these, could be the, the promised land that they're going into. But there's something more than that. Of course, he's going to have a tabernacle built too, isn't he? That's a sanctuary where they will be able to worship him like they haven't before. And he'll show these building blocks, these pictures of what it's like to worship God and, and as he illustrates the Messiah in the tabernacle. But one even further, the eternal state. Being with him. That's where he's taking us. He's leading us right there, right now. And that's his dwelling place. Ultimately, isn't that the place where we want to be? Ultimately, in his, we know he's with us right here, right now, but we shall see him as he is, and be like him. That's where we're going. That's where we're headed. What a trip! This is a great journey, isn't it? You guys like this journey? I think it's phenomenal. You're on the right of your life. This little life right here is very short. Eternity. Doesn't it? Yeah, there's some hard times we go through. But remember, God is sovereign. He is eternal. And He will always reign, as it says here. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. And if He has His children, He is their King. And He's not going to do anything to harm His children. He will give them tests. He wants to make them stronger. He wants to make them holy. Now, 19, a little interlude here for a moment. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. We read that in chapter 14. We've already seen that in 15. And he says it again. Now, why does he do that? Why does he put that in there? Well, you know, maybe it was, you know, it's something that needs to be repeated. 
Sometimes in songs we have choruses. They come back over that chorus or that line and, and it, it needs to stick here. This really happened. I mean, there's no way these guys would ever forget this. But just in case, in case I'm memory short. Now, verse 20 and 21, kind of interesting. You have Miriam coming into play here. Miriam is a sister of Moses. Aaron is a brother of Moses. And those three are kind of combined together a little bit. It could be that there is antiphonal singing happening here. Don't know for sure. I won't press it. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand. Rhythm. Nandor, you've got to like this verse. That's, that's some rhythm. That's a, you know, it's a drum beat. We've got a beat going here. And all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them. That answering is kind of like, okay, maybe you have the men doing this and Miriam comes in and okay, now the women come in. And this is the first verse. Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider He has thrown into the sea. That's verse 1. I don't know if you have this going back and forth. It was just the first verse they came back with. Miriam gets a little credit here. Miriam uh, took the temple and all the women went out after her. Can you imagine a, a million men and then a million women and they're going back and forth? I don't know. Could, could happen. Wow. However it was, this had to have been just great. I mean, and they've, they, they've gotten this song down. The women are repeating, uh, they're, they're a choir. Miriam might have formed a special choir here of, of Jewish women. They said, hey, this is what we're going to do. They, uh, maybe it was an impromptu. They assisted her. They repeated the first words of the song. Are they joyful? Timbrels? Dances? They are just joyous. Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. They're learning. They're learning about God. Psalm 106. Eleven and twelve. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then they believed His words. They sang. His praise. Don't ever hold back the praise that you have. Get an opportunity to bring forth, I mean, just every aspect. Bring it on out. Don't hold it back. Give it to the Lord because look at what He's done. Don't hold back your praise and worship. Give it to Him. Using your your voice, your bodies, whatever. I mean... Everything is what He wants. Full commitment. This is a repeated celebration of of God's deliverance. God's people must be reminded continually. This song stuck in their hearts. Finish up with this. How do we bring this into application? I think we've seen it all the way through, haven't we? This comes from uh, a writer by the name of Peter Enns, E-N-N-S. Sometimes I put these on the board. This time I don't have it there. 
But it said this, We today have a high calling. We participate in an act of God that is far greater than the Exodus. For it is God's climactic act of deliverance in our lives. Focusing our attention in worship relentlessly on God is not mundane nor tedious. Rather, it places the focus, get this, where it ought to be. We sing in an effort to take us away from what we think and draw us toward what we ought to think, feel, experience. Our songs are like the songs of the Bible, reminders of who God is and what He has done. And that was Peter ends on this section. Nothing profound, but it reminds us of what a privilege we have. Let's pray. Father, You are certainly a great God. Awesome indeed. Majestic God, a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of wrath. You are a powerful God. When we think of all those key words, and we can go on and on, that whole song, I pray, would lift us up to another level of praising You. That Your glory would be seen. It's not about us and our, our feelings and emotions, although that does come into play. But it's because of Your very holy presence that is so glorious. And You have let us in a little bit. And we wait for the culmination of it all. But You have revealed Yourself to us. Your holy Word And may we be in Your Holy Word all this week, every day, because that is how we begin to give You praise and glory that is right. And it takes our minds off of ourselves and onto You. Thank You for this day that we've had to worship. In Jesus' name, Amen.